Welcome to Breaking Banks, the number one global fintech radio show and podcast. I'm Brett King. And I'm Jason Henricks. Every week since 2013, we explore the personalities, startups, innovators, and industry players driving disruption in financial services. From incumbents to unicorns, and from cutting-edge technology to the people using it to help create a more innovative, inclusive, and healthy financial future. I'm J.P. Nichols, and this is Breaking Banks. In 2013, Harlem Shake, Thrift Shop, Blurred Lines, and Wrecking Ball battled at the top of the music charts, and we were all glued to our seats waiting for the finale of Breaking Bad, and for better or worse, twerking went mainstream. And Breaking Banks recorded its first show. If you look at how far the financial services industry has evolved since 2013, it's pretty mind-blowing. We saw the explosion of VC-backed fintech deals begin to take shape, moving from $2.8 billion in 2013 to a whopping $28 billion in the last quarter alone. We saw the rise of neobanks. Ron Shevlin advocated to retire the term PFM. Cryptocurrencies went mainstream, sort of, and where more and more traditional financial institutions began to adopt more and more digital technologies. Major regulatory changes pushed fintech to the top of the agenda for banks in Europe and elsewhere, and that's been further accelerated as a global pandemic forced the hands of even the stodgiest laggards. What does this all mean, and is it enough? One thing that hasn't changed, nearly 400 episodes later on this eighth anniversary show, we're joined by some of the greatest minds in the industry to discuss the past, the present, and the future of banking and fintech. So come along for the journey as we explore some of the best moments in history of the show and hear from some of our guests and contributors. As always, thanks for sharing Breaking Banks and your five-star reviews help others find the show. Subscribe to get the latest episodes delivered in your favorite podcast app. We're going to start with Joanne Barefoot. Joanne, always a pleasure to have you back on the show. You've been here many times. Are there any key moments that just stand out to you? Thanks, JP. It's so great to be back on the show. I'm going to tell a story not about the show, although I've had so many fun times on it, but rather about the first time I ever saw Brett speak. It was at a banking conference. I can't remember exactly when or where, but probably around the time the show started up. And he showed a video of a little toddler. She was his niece or the daughter of a friend. And that little baby was trying to manipulate a book that she was holding as if it was an iPad. And Brett said to that audience, this is your customer, all digital. This is who you're going to have to please as much as an iPad does if you're going to be a successful bank. So I don't know how many speeches I have heard since that one, maybe hundreds, maybe even thousands. And I don't remember most of them. And I remember this because it came through so clearly. And this is Brett. He is the great communicator and he is the great thought leader for the financial industry and beyond. So it's really fun to be here today. Yeah, I remember reading uh, Bank 2.0, where Brett coined the phrase that banking is no longer somewhere you go, it's something you do. And you know, here in 2021, just uh, a month or so ago, a banker kind of repeated that back you know, without attribution. It was kind of internalized as, you know, it was a brilliant insight for him. You know, they were talking, it was a bank executive talking about his own bank. And, uh, and he kind of said that, well, you know, Banking's no longer somewhere you go. It's something you do. I said, yeah, I've, I've, I think I've heard that before somewhere. Um, and 
and and that was the idea of um, not just Brett's speaking and and his books, but the whole idea of starting the show. And uh, I, I first joined as a guest in 2013. Uh, I was then uh, co-founder of uh, the Bank Innovators Council. I had uh, left a banking career after 20 years and knew that those that were trying to innovate and get new things done inside the bank were a lonely bunch and they wanted a club to belong to. And uh, Brett actually helped us uh, kick that off uh, in our, our our first event and had me on the show and and talk about it. And so you you think back, it's um, I, I, I think of of uh, one of Bill Gates's uh, quotes that, you know, we, we tend to overestimate what happens in two years and underestimate what happens in 10. Well, we're in the middle of that right now, eight years. And you think about uh, so much that has uh, happened since then. And, you know, certainly in your own life as well, and, and, and you spend a lot of time thinking about the regulatory side of the business and, and reg tech. Um, you, you know, Jamie Dimon's been talking about this lately and, and, and talk about what's changed over the years. Uh, he, he was not a believer in cryptocurrency, now investing uh, uh, kind of big into that, certainly was early in partnering with fintechs and to say that, look, um, you know, fintech and other companies from Silicon Valley are going to eat our lunch. Uh, but he's also talking about regulation and policy to level the playing field. What do you see? What, what's the kind of truth and um, the, the fiction still around that regulatory landscape today and, and maybe compared to eight years ago? Yeah. Well, for one thing, the fintech sector needs to be ready for the fact that we are going to have a lot more regulation. It's going to be coming pretty soon. Some of it is because of the political moment we're in in the United States with a new administration and a new Congress. And some of it is just the maturing of the space and the fact that it's not a little tiny thing on the side anymore. It's changing people's lives. So people need to be prepared for a lot of change. And this audience in the U.S. needs to know that there's a lot of skepticism about fintech in many of, from many of the new leaders in Washington, and people need to be ready to tell the story of what they're really doing to make life better for, for the consumer. But the other thing I'd say about Jamie Dimon's point is that the I, I don't think we're going to see a lot of regulatory change that is aimed at, at making the landscape level between banks and non-banks. We'll see some of that. But the more profound thing that's happening is that the line between banks and fintechs is just blurring and dissolving in many areas. And it's not as relevant a question as it was before. It's still true that if you take consumer deposits and have deposit insurance on them, you're in a special category. But banks are working with fintechs and vice versa. Fintechs are becoming banks. Banks are realizing they need fintech to be competitive and to survive. And, you know, the whole thing is completely realigning. And the other point that I'll make on this is that I do think that the playing field will level through reg tech in terms of regulatory burden. It's not so much that we're going to have new regulation, although we will, but it's also just that when we get great digital technology into the regulatory and compliance process, and we're getting there, it, that is poised to be huge. We are going to find that a bank can more easily compete with a fintech. We're going to find that a regulator can more easily regulate both kinds of activities in the same way, digitally instead of 
through the bifurcated system where one gets an intensive on-site exam and the other, you know, gets looked at from time to time from a distance. That whole thing is going to be merging into what, if we do it right, it's going to be a very efficient, lower cost and more effective and really stronger regulatory system because the regulators and risk managers will have a lot better data. Well, how has that reg tech space been evolving over the past eight years or maybe even less than that? Is reg tech even eight years old yet? Yeah, I wouldn't call it eight years old. I, I've heard people claim that the term was invented before that, but not, no, not really. Uh, and reg tech has been following in the footsteps of fintech the whole way along. The, uh, you know, I like to say that the digital technology drew a lot of real tech people into finance with their right. new products and services. And when they got there, they looked around at the regulatory setup and they said, I can't believe we're doing it this way. And uh, so people started creating reg tech. But you're not a fan of Excel spreadsheets? <laughs> yeah. There's worse things out there, I'll tell you. I mean, we still got the government is you know, running on COBOL and all of it. But, um, but these things are changing fast. Uh, I work, as you know, JP, constantly with regulators in the U.S. and around the world. They are embracing innovation uh, rapidly for a whole host of reasons, all accelerated also by the COVID experience of the past year. And um, one of the things that's happening is the banks will be more and more able to use RegTech because their regulators will be smiling on it instead of frowning at it. And we're going to see the time, it's not that far ahead, where a bank is going to have to be worried about not using a high-tech new compliance tool instead of worrying that if it tries one, the bank examiner will be uncomfortable with it. That's going to flip over because these tools are just better. I don't, if I can um, say a little uh self-promotion, Hummingbird, the, the um, reg tech firm that I co-founded four and a half years ago, just was recognized as the best solution for compliance and risk by uh, Finex Tech, bank director. And, um, you know, that's, that's bank focused. And as banks really become able to use these, and they've got to, at the same time, they've got to work on their own core technology, being able to put good digital solutions to work. But that this is what's coming. Well, and, and even just this week, you talk about the lines blurring and, you know, Chime and, and, and apparently other neobanks are in for the same kind of uh, treatment here that they, they can't use the word bank or banking, um, right, if, if they're not a bank. And I, I sent out a, you know, somewhat tongue in cheek uh, tweet around the American Banker article saying that you know the the laggard banks that are hoping this fintech fad goes away soon will be saying aha checkmate <laughs> and uh, and of course you know nothing could be further than the, from the truth that you know just because uh, they can't call themselves a bank I mean that that is such a minor minor point um, on that but you also talked about kind of the regulatory. Um, environment. And, and we've been in a deregulatory mode for the most part, right? Um, for 30 plus years now, you know, post the global financial crisis, we had Dodd-Frank and a little bit of re-regulation, but then, um, you know, that 
you know, kind of faded away, at least under the last administration. And we kind of had um, lighter rains. Is it just cyclical like that? It'll depend on administration. Or is there a macro trend? Do we get back to re-regulation or uh, is it more deregulation, do you think? Yeah, it's a great question. It, it's somewhat cyclical. I've been around the regulatory world long enough to know that. But, um, but there is a macro trend as well. I think that, and some of it is because the technology has changed so much. You know, this is not, as you well know, this is not an evolution of old analog era technology. The the digital technology is a different generation. You know, it's different right down to its foundations. And so it's really transforming a lot of things. And um, we're also in a moment, I mean, the past year, in COVID has changed so many things. And certainly one of them has been that the murder of George Floyd really galvanized thinking everywhere throughout the United States and and around the world on really trying to solve problems that have just been hard to solve in every sector, including in finance. And I think we're going to see a tremendous amount of regulatory and policy focus And how do we really make financial services fair to everyone, not discriminatory? How do we close the wealth gap? How do we we catch discrimination in in ways where, you know, if the bank had a better tool, it would catch patterns that could be construed as discriminatory as soon as they pop up and fix it and help the customer and keep themselves out of trouble at the same time. These problems accumulate because they're buried in what the bank is doing and our tools for finding them are terrible today. So that is all changing. And so we're gonna go into a period of very, very difficult and important regulation where I'm hopeful that policymakers and regulators will be figuring out the rules of the road for how technology should be used in finance to enable great innovation to happen and also make sure that it's it's fair. So how are we gonna use AI? How are we going to make sure it's not biased? Um, how are we gonna protect people's privacy? If we do those things right, it will help the, the FinTech uh, world and the financial world. If we do it wrong, it'll be really bad. Yeah, I mean, I've said this before, but this idea of leveling the playing field, I mean, on the surface, that makes sense to everybody, right? But for some bankers, at least, I think that means, can we drag um, the modern fintech companies back down to our landscape, which is you know, pen and paper and brick and mortar uh, based and, and dealing with regulations that most of the most relevant ones written in the 1960s, 70s, and 80s. And um, what you're really talking about is um, actually not only leveling, but kind of raising the bar for everybody and using better tools. And, and, and I think um, some tweaks on the way the regulations are written. I, I think the outcomes are the same thing we wanted you know, 40, 50, 60 years ago. But how we get there and um, the uh, speed and efficiency uh, efficiency with which we can get there and um, uh, determine compliance, I, I think, is you know <laughs> way better today than it ever has been in the past. And, and, I, and I hope that's what the future looks like. 
Well, if you're a leader of a financial institution uh, today listening to this, I mean, Joanne, what advice do you have? What What do you think the main focus should be going forward? So I know it sounds obvious, but still it's hard for people to do. The main thing is you have to digitize everything. And when we say that, we don't mean stick some technology on top of your old system or your old process or your old website or any of it. We really mean stripping it down to the foundation level and building it differently for today's generation. And let's remember these tech trends and regulatory trends are converging with demographic trends. Millennials are the largest generation in the history of the world. I saw a statistic the other day that by 2030, there will be one third of the workforce. The older ones are entering their 40s. They're taking over the world. You know, I'm a baby boomer. They're taking over the world from the leaders from the baby boomer generation and the Gen Xers. And they're all digitally native. Customers won't put up with bad old technology. Employees won't put up with bad old technology, nor with, uh, with companies that aren't doing their best for people. We're seeing this tremendous surge in green finance. That's one piece of advice I would give to everyone is think about how your organization is dealing with climate change. AIR just uh, helped launch something called the Crypto Climate Accord um, a month or so ago, working on how the crypto sector is working to uh, decarbonize uh, given the intensive use of, crypt, of um, energy. Um, I, I just think that the, the, I mean, the practical advice is get out of your silo, get out of your comfort zone, go to different kinds of things, listen to Breaking Banks every show, learn, you know, and then just be ready to do things differently. Uh, people don't like to hear this, but it's basically true. Young tech is better tech. Old tech has a harder time doing what new digitally native tech can do. And that's a hard thing for an existing bank that has, you know, what Clay Christensen called the innovator's dilemma. You know, it's hard to right. lean away from you've been doing that's working but if you don't do it if you're a bank you i think you won't make it you're going to have to make this leap yeah it's more than um what we like to call just putting digital lipstick on the analog pig and <laughs> you mentioned air talk a little bit more about what you're doing with air and tell our our listeners where they can keep up with um what you've been working on and um wh where they can find your your latest materials Thank you for asking. So something exciting has happened for AIR, which is we were honored in the Fast Company World Changing Ideas uh, Awards just this week. And um, congratulations. Honored, thank you. We're an honorable mention in the category of policy and politics. And honestly, JP, if you think about the arcane nature of our subject matter, we just thought it was a miracle. Uh, we had a lot of good company in the, in the uh in the honorable mention category, including IBM, CNN, World Economic Forum, and so on. So we're really excited. And we should about put, well, Joan, I want to point out uh, AIR uh, is AIR. It's the Alliance for Innovative Regulation. So uh, continue. Is, people used to think was an oxymoron, but no more. So we're <laughs> doing a lot of big things. Our, our website is uh, regulationinnovation.org. 
And there you can see information on the Crypto Climate Accord. You can see information on the what won the Fast Company Award, which is that we've started an accelerator that is taking breakthrough regulatory tools that come out of running tech sprints and incubating them in an open source environment in GitHub and making them into tools that can be used by regulators and risk managers for free, uh, everyone. And it's such a profound game-changing way to try. We have to break down the, we have to make the regulatory world interoperable. And uh, one of the steps toward that is really using a lot in open source. So we've been doing that. We've, we've got initiatives in racial equity and I mentioned green finance and uh, women's empowerment. We're running a two-part uh, global tech sprint with the UK Financial Conduct Authority on how women have been disproportionately impacted by COVID and how technology can help with that. Um, we're doing a lot of work on trying to help community banks uh, stay uh, competitive and uh, so on. So we're very excited about it. And we've got some even bigger things actually about to be announced. Really, really, really big things that I can't talk about yet. So keep your eye on AIR. Well, you can find out more about AIR at regulationinnovation.org. Uh, Joanne Barefoot, always a pleasure to have you uh, throughout the years. And thanks for joining us on our eighth anniversary show. It's a pleasure. So uh, I thought I'd reach out to Rich Turin, who is the author of uh, Cashless China, Innovation Lab Excellence. Um, if you haven't read Cashless, um, you, you must read it. It, it. If you don't know the Chinese fintech and payments market, it's going to blow your mind. But um, Rich, um, I, I thought on this occasion of the eighth anniversary of Breaking Banks, can you give us your perspective of how fintech has changed the landscape? particularly in China over that period, over the last eight years or so. Yeah, hi, Brett. Um, thank you all. And, you know, look, it's a great question and a really funny one for me because I moved to China 10 years ago, actually 11, 10 and change now. But when you look back at China eight years ago, that was before the boom of WeChat and Alipay. So, you know, what I like to talk about is essentially me renting apartments here. So when I rented an apartment, my first couple of apartments in China, of course, I have to pay a security deposit. And that meant going to the bank. And I literally bring a backpack because I would go to the bank and I would get big bricks of 100 RMB notes, all precisely counted and wrapped up in paper. And I would have to give these bricks over to my landlords, you know, for rent deposit. And it was Crazy. a different world. This is pre WeChat and Alipay making uh, payment easy in China. So yeah, I lived through um, this transition from bricks of money required for large big ticket items. Um, and, you know, the last apartment, bang, okay, who needs a brick, who needs bricks anymore? We just use WeChat for everything or, or Alipay for everything. So yeah, a really big and noteworthy transaction in the, uh, or tr transition in the China marketplace. It's, it's dramatic. 
Now, of course, um, more recently, you know, there's been a lot of attention on the big uh, tech fins, um, uh, it, you know, and, and fintechs in general, with some tighter regulation coming into play. Um, do you expect that'll have any impact on the growth of these organizations, or is it just a maturation process? Um, it's all of the above. Um, it signals a new growth period for them. And you, there's a lot to really take in um, on that topic. So let me break it down. Number one, for those who are watching from afar, and some of you may have bought shares in Alibaba and are terrified of what's happening with the regulators in China, don't be. This does not signal a renunciation or they're not put more basically, the regulators aren't breaking things. Essentially, there was a 10-year period of benign neglect in China. The internet companies got big. They became systemically important, too big to fail, both in the finance and in things like ride sharing. Look, Didi Chusheng, and I like to take the example out of fintech. Didi Chusheng now has something like 95% of the ride sharing market in China. They're a monopoly. They are large. So basically, China has gone from a system of benign neglect of, uh, of, uh, of tech companies, including fintechs, and now they are insuring several things. Their first intent is to ensure that innovation continues. Now, let me break this down. China is no dope. They've been watching very carefully what happened with GAFA companies in the United States and watched them buy all of the smaller companies. And as a result, innovation in the tech market in the U.S. has actually slowed. They don't want that. So they want to make sure that the innovation ground is fertile, that they have more green fields. Now, that's true. Think about how many new GAFA companies have come to be in the last 10 years, which is zero for the U.S. market, and think of China. Well, at TikTok or Douyin, the, the Chinese name for the same company, that's a new GAFA equivalent company in China that was born within the last six years. So they're, exactly. they want to continue with that innovation. And to do that, they have to ensure that the big companies are not fair, unduly advantaged to buying out all of the smaller companies. So that's the number one thing on their agenda. The number two thing is, of course, are they playing fair? So what we saw with Alibaba, with their fine, was basically Alibaba had a policy, probably goes back to when they were a nothing small company, said, look, we're fighting with what other we're fighting for market share eight or nine years ago with other companies, and we want you to use our platform to the exclusion of others. When they were a startup, when they were new, nobody cared. It was probably okay to do that. I'm not because I want to make sure we don't cast Alibaba in a negative light, but the reality is that they're a big company. So a big company doing that is bad news. It's bad for the marketplace. So again, regulators came in and said, you large companies all have to play fair. And that's a good thing for tech in China. 
The third thing they did is, of course, to say, who is systemically important? And if you are systemically important, and this would really play to the fintechs, you have to abide by certain rules. And some of these rules are the banking rules. Now, I understand that that's painful for all of us. But what it does is it puts the fintech industry, which is truly too big to fail and systemically important, on a stronger foundation. Let me explain why. Basically, fintech in China existed in a gray area. And what the Chinese government is doing is to take away the gray area, the gray space where they existed and say, look, you are going to be regulated. You are going to have to follow some of the rules that the banks have. And I will not say that it's not short-term painful for the fintechs. It is. I'm not going to argue that. And I consent that it will impact their revenue. But long term, they are going to be on a sound and secure foundation for growth. So it's short-term volatility versus long-term stability and long-term growth. Anyone counting out China fintech because of these rules and regulations is selling short the entire industry. Absolutely. What you're going to see, what you're really going to see is the likes of Ant getting its banking licenses and and being just as creative within the license space with all the data they have and they're going to disrupt this space again but they're going to do it legally they're going to do exactly. it within all of the bounds and as i like to say um they are going to be just as disruptive and now we'll have an even greater look Ant couldn't do home loans. Ant couldn't do car loans. There's a lot of stuff they didn't do. Oh, you wait. You Banks, yeah. if you think that you were being challenged before, you just wait to see after the dust settles and after they come after you for even other, for other lines of business that before they were, well, we're not going to step into that zone because that's over the gray area. It's a new, it is a new, stronger tech ecosystem after regulation than before. So that's Absolutely. the good news. The, remember, the regulators aren't breaking things. They're building a stronger foundation. That's where it's going to be. Awesome. Well, Richard, thanks for uh, joining us on our eighth anniversary show. Uh, your new book, Cashless, Cashless, China's Digital Currency Revolution, is a number one bestseller on Amazon right now. Um, where can people find out more about it? I guess they can go to Amazon, but uh, where else? Sure. Um, it's on Amazon, soon to pop up on Apple Books. Um, those are the two majors. Uh, Apple Books is about another week away. By the time somebody hears this, I'm sure. I guess be people there. can follow you on LinkedIn and and see your uh, musings on on and, and and Twitter on the space as well. Absolutely, LinkedIn and Twitter. Uh, I love LinkedIn and I'm on Twitter every day. Awesome. Well, thanks, Richard, and all the best, and uh, see you hopefully back in Shanghai soon. I look forward to it. Thanks so much for having me, Brett. Hey guys, shout out for eight years of Breaking Banks. My name is Matteo Rizzi. I'm the executive producer of Breaking Banks Europe together with the FTS Group. 
We put together an amazing team after a breakfast with uh, Brad King in Milan a couple of years ago. And now on this side of the ocean, we are at show number 80 something and we look up our brothers on the other side uh, that are, you know, with so many more shows. So look forward for uh, more life together in, uh, in this uh, podcast adventure. And uh, I wish you the best of luck. Parabéns! Joyeux anniversaire! Bon compleanno! Feliz cumpleaños! Stay tuned! Dave Birch, uh, you've been a regular on Breaking Banks since the very early days. In fact, I was I was sort of reminiscing about this uh, before we got on the phone, and um, it, I think it was Chris Skinner that introduced us. And my first meeting with you was actually recording on your podcast regarding Bank Two. <laughs> Yeah, no, it was. And the reason for that was because I can't remember how the conversation came about, but I, I, I'm not a big person for, for business books. I, it's, not, it's not really my thing. And to be completely honest, I don't like most of them. Because, you know, you see this is a business book about, like, you know, what would Steve Jobs do or something? And yeah. Taking these Who's utterly the unique Jobs? circumstances yeah. and imagining that you can run your pet shop on the same principles. So I'm not a big bit, but I, I happened across your book and uh, I picked it up and started flicking through it and I ended up reading the whole thing. And I just, you know, I thought the way that you pulled stuff together and the way that you mixed actual thought leadership with, with real examples, I, I, I just really liked it. And I'd mentioned it. I, I can't remember why it came up, but I'd mentioned it to Chris and that was how come he introduced us. And then I thought, because I, I, at that time I was making podcasts every week and I thought, well, I have to, gra- I have to grab you. And you were just kind. You didn't know me from Adam, but you were kind enough to come and make the podcast. And you're right. That's that's kind of how it all got started. It was it was your book, and uh, and originally my podcast. <laughs> yes, yes. And so um, I, I I think it needs to be said. You know, at the eighth anniversary of uh, Breaking Banks, that um, you know you you actually predated us because that was in 2010, <laughs> and we were in. Uh, you know, uh, we we started in in May 2013, of course, with with breaking banks. But um, um, I, maybe let let me ask you this, uh, sort of in a different way, your your observations, because you've been um, a commentator and uh, uh, you know a watcher of of the space over that period. You know, so over the last eight to ten years, um, you know, how would you characterize the impact that fintechs fintech has had on you know the the global banking and finance market so the thing is when i originally started listening to it brett it was it was partly because it was people that i knew and whose opinions i trusted because you you tended to invite people who i i read their stuff and i you know they they, they were people i thought made a lot of sense at the time uh, but of course uh, over the years you've done a pretty good job of it, of expanding it out to follow i think what is the trajectory of fintech which is this thing about everything ending up as a financial services company this whole thing about embedded finance and finance permeating everywhere and so and i enjoy that uh, very much but I, I think the big difference now is then i kind of only listened to 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 you but now we're not in a world just of fintech anymore i mean now like i'm trying to keep up with fintech, regtech, insurtech, and all these other things. So 
I mean, it's still a short list, but now I, you know, I listen to, I listen to you. I listen to, I listen to Joanne on, on the reg tech side. And, um, uh, yeah, but it's, it's, it's a much it's, bigger topic than it was when you started. I mean, even just like take challenger banks as an example or neo banks, uh, which was a phrase yeah, I yeah. believe was coined by yourself, right? Uh, well, look, I, I, I tell the industry. Well, but, um, but Rod, you know, really, yeah. Yeah. But, but, but we, look, we used to be able to track every new challenger bank that had launched and talk about how they were differentiated. There's no way you can do that now. It seems like five new challenges launching every week, right? Well, actually, I think I think on that bit, I think some of my old analysis holds up pretty well because because I can remember saying more than once that I I wasn't sure if challenges was the right name for them. Because, because, and, and you saw that thing like earlier in the year, Jamie Dimon said, you know, I'm laying awake at night and the, you know, you have to be scared of all it. And he wasn't listing challenger banks, right? you know, he was, he was listing Amazon right. and Facebook and Google. They're the challengers, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. not, not those sort of niche banks. So I think that analysis holds up, holds up pretty well, I think, but the, but, but the general point you're making, which is that, it went from being something about the finance sector, something about developing bank strategies. Over that period, it's become everything strategies, like everything hinges on this. And we're just about to go into this. We're going over the cusp now, moving into that world of central bank digital currency. That's everything. I mean, that's 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 not even just business anymore. That's everything. So, Changes. yeah, I, I got to say it's about money. Yeah, you know, you've, I got to say, it's a pretty interesting journey, don't you think? Oh, it's it's a delightful journey, and uh, it's been great to have um, you know you you on the on the team with us over that time. And, and <laughs> I always enjoy it, Brett. Any the, the fun, I think that you know, I, I will just wrap up with this. I think the funniest moment we've had on Breaking Banks was actually uh, a courtesy of you. <laughs> um, the, the the most I've laughed, which was when we did that show on, uh, we were doing a show together. I can't remember what the show was now, but we used to do the FinTech news at the start of the show, you remember? And, uh, you know, one of those was about the Yahoo breach. Do you remember that? that oh, that <laughs> sorry, I do. And, uh, you know, you, you came out with this line and, and it was myself and um, I think, it, it was, I don't know if it was Ron or someone else was co-hosting with me. It might have been Chris, and you said uh, um, something lines. You were really shocked um, about the breach, um, and, and you were you were shocked because you had no idea that Yahoo still had half a billion users. Which, <laughs> I, was, which I was a very funny. Moment. I was taken aback a bit by that. It's true. And look, and look how much worse it's got since then. You you were out yeah. of gas last week, right? Because your oil pipeline got shut down yeah. by these guys. Yeah. Nah, I think I'm going to get a Tesla now. <laughs> anyway. Well, Dave Burst, thanks for being a part of our uh, history over the last eight years. Oh, it's and, been an uh, absolute pleasure, Brett. Um, a real, real value. And thank you for your thought leadership in the space as well. You're more than welcome. And, and I, I'm hopefully, I can actually say it this time, we'll have a coffee soon. Absolutely. Take care. Cheers. We all want to know we have enough to get to where we want to go. Either have enough energy to run a marathon or you're on the side of the road wheezing. How about your startup? Does it have enough cloud computing power to win and handle the really big customers? 
You might think stable, enterprise-ready cloud infrastructure like Oracle's is out of reach for your new company. But Oracle for Startups was made just for you. Oracle wants to help you land those big customers, so they're offering preferred pricing on enterprise cloud for startups. Free cloud credits and 70% off their cloud services. And with multi-cloud support and no vendor lock-in, you can build it out any way you want. Oracle for Startups won't leave you wheezing on the side of the road. They'll give you enough power to scale and land your dream customers and win the race. Visit oracle.com slash go-to slash breaking banks. That's oracle.com slash go-to slash breaking banks. Joining me today for this special eighth anniversary special is host of Women in Fintech, the amazing Chloe James, and the legendary Jim Maroos, host of Banking Transform. Now, Chloe, congratulations are in order. Your family has welcomed a new member this year. Tell us a little bit more. We have. Hi, it's great to be here, Jason, and I can't believe it's the eighth anniversary. Uh, so exciting. Breaking Banks has been a huge part of my life. Um, but yes, uh, more recently, I have an eight-week-old son called Judson. Uh, so he is officially a coronial, I've heard. He was born in the pandemic. Um, we're still living it here in Toronto, but yeah, he's beautiful and uh, joins uh, my family with my husband, Josh, and our two-year-old, not yet two-year-old Louise. So we've got two under two. So not getting much sleep. Oh, not much at all. Well, congratulations. And when I was thinking about who I wanted to sit down with for this episode, I immediately thought of the two of you. One, because this is how I got to know you, Chloe, over the last several years. And Jim, this is the closest we've worked together. Now, I'm curious about what your earliest memory of breaking banks is. Jim, why don't we start with you? Um, the earliest memory, I, I, I was on a few shows and I guess Brett and I were getting along pretty well. And he said, I need you to do me a favor. I need you to take this next show for me. Can you host it? And I'm saying, uh, yeah, okay. I wasn't sure what to do. And as it so happens, I had it all scripted out. I mean, down to the detail, who flips out at what point, when do the commercials run? I mean, just like you guys do. I mean, you, yeah. you, you detail oriented, you don't want it to fall apart. Well, I got the first guest on. And about one and a half minutes into the show, the audio went out. He basically lost connection. So now everything I had planned was completely out of control. I, I think thoughtfully, I think I seamlessly transitioned to the second guest who was on the show. I went to him and then we went to a commercial and I'm trying to, to process, okay, where was I with the first guest? Do I bring back the first? Do I do the second? At the end, it wasn't impossible, but what was interesting, it, it really gave me the understanding that, that putting on a podcast is not the easiest thing in the world. You have to always be prepared for the unexpected, even to the point of, oh, by the way, the guests can't connect at all to make the show. And this was when we were doing things live. So it, oh, you know, I hated no, those live shows. The, no, like, no pre-recorded, man. We, we, were, we were going, we couldn't say, oh, let's stop for a second. Let's pick it up from there. But oh. it, was, it was really intriguing. And, and what I remember from that show and, and all the shows is you always learn something new. Unlike when you research something that's on in a paper or a, a re research report or something, go to an event. These podcasts were are always, still are always, major learning experiences because you get the, the dynamic of the personality and the passion during the conversation, which is really kind of cool. 
I, I do love that. Chloe, how about your first memory of Breaking Banks? I was thinking about this and I think Brett's going to love this story, but um, I remember being in Vegas at Money 2020 years and years ago. Um, it's got to be at least five. And um, Brett King walked past me and I wanted to say hello and I was too nervous and I didn't, which I think is hilarious and he'll probably love that I um, add that in. And then I think I connected with him afterwards and he was like, Chloe, you should have just had a chat to me. You know, we'd love to have you on and, you know, come and co-host. And that was when, you know, it was that sort of like celebrity walking through Vegas. I honestly clearly remember it. I think he was wearing some, you know, brightly coloured sports coat, but just echoing Jim there. I mean, we've had some great guests. I've always loved being a part of it. Uh, Contrary to opinion, I love, you know, I love it that it's live. I love um, those live conversations because I think that's when you really get, you know, really good sort of juicy energy. It's exciting. Um, and I know what, I know how Jim feels, you know, when something like that goes wrong. I've had it. I've had a guest before who's sort of frozen and just given me one word, one word responses. And then you really have to pedal hard uh, yes, to sort of get true. those stories out. Yeah. Well, it's funny because you also you also think about the talk show host because, you know, talk shows do a great job, but once in a while they get a guest they haven't been familiar with or the person's just not in the mood and you get those one-word answers or five-word answers and you go, I don't have enough script for this. You know? <laughs> this is going to be very short. Yes, exactly. I don't have the Luckily, you and I, Jim, we can we can both sort of talk underwater with a mouthful of marbles. So we can, <laughs> we can keep it going. Actually, we go through yeah. this again, to be fair. Yeah. So, Chloe, stick with you. You both actually now have your own podcast, Jim, The Banking Transformed, and Chloe, Women in uh, FinTech. Since you've, you know, gone and created these other platforms, how have you seen, you know, the impact you've been able to have on the industry? And Chloe, let's start with the women in FinTech, because you've had some absolutely fabulous guests on. Yeah, I love, I mean, I love that. And I've always been really passionate about the women piece. Obviously, I'm a woman. Um, and I've had some fantastic guests from sort of, you know, the more traditional bankers, uh, you know, real big fintech kind of superstars, leader glyptus people, you know, that we all know around the circuit. Um, some uh, great sort of government uh, people sort of talking about, uh, you know, being a woman in this field. I, I was thinking about this and just two things that I think really have kind of come out to me that have always sort of been said is, um, you know, taking risks as a woman, it's, you know, hugely important to do. These are some things that have come out of the show and also about building your network. So uh, women aren't traditionally as great at really building those professional networks. And a lot of the women that I've spoken to really echo those two sentiments, those take risk, build your networks. It's, it's why I love what I do. It gives women a voice, their stories, their ideas, their sort of passion. And um, yeah, I'll, I'll continue it on. I absolutely love it. Jim, what about you with Banking Transformed? Well, you know, it's interesting because I was lucky in that before we actually turned the platform on, I, I had a few guests that I had already recorded at the Financial Brand Forum. So I had Gary Vanichuk, I had the ex-CMO of Kodak, I had uh, a woman who is in charge of um, personalization and transformation at Google. And I had some really good guests to start off which made it so that from then on, it increased the level of who I wanted to be on the show and my ability to get them on the show. I am, I am still flabbergasted. And, and this was set, set up in place by Brett where you, you can't shoot too high. It's amazing you can get on the show if you have a platform that, that people have um, 
talked to in the past or, or know. And you get to the point where you realize at the end of the day, people listen based on, is it a household name, either the brand or the person within your audience of who you're talking to, or is it a topic that's going to draw attention? Now, the downside of this is I've been very lucky. We just received an international award for both the show and for one of our specific episodes. And what that's done and the, the number of people that are now listening, it has generated an extraordinary number of requests to be on the show huh. from many times solution providers. You know, they want to they want to be part of the platform. And a lot of times it's just not the right match and you go, geez, I'd love to have you in the show, but I don't think you're going to be happy with the results because people make a determination before they even click on the podcast on whether or not they want to listen. It's not something they just absorb, you know, through, through osmosis. I mean, it's funny you mentioned that um, Matt Harris at Bain Capital Ventures and I talking about unicorns versus workhorses and talk about, you know, back to that live problem he was late to LaGuardia. So we were recording him on a New York street corner while trying to hail an Uber, but people still <laughs> listen to that both because of, you know, who Matt is, but like the, you know, this, you know, what do you want the flashy FinTech or are you, you know, going to replumb banking, but it's still, we have hundreds of listens per week and it's over two years old and still relevant. Well, you, know, I might that add. Was, you know, that's interesting because Steve Wozniak was the same way. It was a very short conversation. It was at an event. I had a very limited window. That they were going to allow me to speak. Mind you, I took that window and kept on going, Oh, one more thing is as people were making me all kinds of signals, but you know, for me, it was, a, it, I got jazzed about that. You know, you get somebody like that and you just go like, this is a legend, you know, talking to Guy Kawasaki and other people. It's just, it's just insane what can happen, but it, it's so much fun. Yeah. Well, you know, if we look back eight years and especially over the year that was 2020, so much has changed and yet so much has stayed the same, you know, putting on your prognostication, Chloe, what do you think the biggest breakthroughs are that are yet to come? Or if you look back, you know, where have you seen and say, hey, you know, why haven't we seen bigger breakthroughs yet today? Yeah, I think um, obviously with everything that's going on in the world at the moment, e-commerce, you know, used to be huge and it's just getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. You know, Amazon has tripled their profit since the pandemic began, which I heard on the news the other day. And I thought, well, I hope that Bezos is giving some money to the uh, COVID funds around the world because that's just huge. Um, and I order about a million things from Amazon every day because I have children and you just need to order, you know, things that help make them sleep, for example. But that's a huge piece for me that's still growing and continues to. The buy now, pay later piece I was thinking about, um, the, you know, Nick Molnar, Australian, obviously it's the same as me. I know Nick from back in Sydney days and that company is now worth $2 billion, um, a huge kind of disruptor in the market. And I think that's going to really just uh, keep pushing forward. And then, you know, the, the usage of cash just completely going down, um, even more so now because no one wants to touch anything <laughs> without sanitizing their hands. So they were some things that I thought were really important. I think something else that's really um, big that's kind of coming through is, you know, sustainability and people really caring about, uh, you know, their finances and people and how they can, you know, treat their customers. And that's just kind of continuing on growing and that's treating the customers, but also the organizations that people work for and especially getting some young guns through people really want to work for an organization who cares. They were some thoughts I had. 
Fantastic. Jim, what about you? You know, it's interesting. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tie it back to Banking Transform, the podcast, in that one thing that's coming out more and more, and it's really based on what Chloe said as well, is the importance of leadership that can envision what's needed in the future and actually do something about it. You know, be it sustainability, be it transformation, be it personalization, be it digital, any of these elements. I think the definition between winners and losers more than anything going forward is going to be defined by who the leaders are. And, you know, Mm -hmm. Banking Transform continues to have leaders in organizations on the show and Brett's connection with that. And and Brett's a leader. I mean, he's he's finishing a book right now about the future that, that (laughs) I'm sorry, but banking may never see because I'm not too sure they can get to that space where Brett's talking about right now. But the reality is, the, the organizations, be them financial or non-financial, are real, and, and countries are being driven by the people that lead them. And they're either being held back or moving forward. And I'm gonna be writing an article on Monday for the financial brand around two plus two doesn't equal four necessarily um, when it comes to bringing together um, M&As on the financial services side. We've seen that with Truist, we've seen it with a lot of banks. I mean, April is the biggest month ever for M&A work in the US. But the problem is getting bigger doesn't make it better. And it's really going to get to the point that if you have the same leadership, but you have a bigger organization, does it really change the outcome? And I'm not too sure if it does. I mean, I go back and I think we talked about this point before, Jason, to something that was called the Resolution Trust Corporation, which is where the government said, we're going to put together a bunch of bad savings loans and we think we can make it into a good bank. It didn't happen because it was still the same leadership. And I'm not going to... I'm not going to give the death knell for any of these organizations that have done mergers, but I'm saying, unless you change who you are and truly embrace where you're going to, I, I liken it to the ropes course, unless you, unless you let go of the first rope and get to the second rope, it doesn't get easier with time. And, you know, it, 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 when I see logos on financial institutions well after the merger that are the old logos, it's like, for me, it's like United and Continental when they got together. And I can still pick out what routes still have Continental people uh, staffing it, crew, than, than United. And they're vastly different in the way those flights work. Well, I can tell you from my fitness regime, you can't keep doing the same thing over and over and expect dramatically different results, right? <laughs> or not doing them. Or not doing them. Exactly. I mean, that's the problem. You know, behavioral change sucks. I mean, it yeah. really does. And if I've been in banking for 30, 20 years, and I'm surrounded by other people that came up through the ranks with me, changing the way I'm going to envision the way I want to go, number one, I probably don't have a clue on what that really is. You know, we just did a re- uh, research on, on the, the leadership gap with regard to digital. I mean, most people didn't understand what digital was. They didn't need to. Now, how do you transform that? Do you either take that change on and educate yourself? Or do you basically bring people on? Well, in understanding that becoming digital isn't just slapping, you know, the, you know, my favorite digital lipstick on the analog pig. And let's face it, the business model of banking is relatively unchanged since the time of Medici, right? But we're now seeing with embedded finance and where that's going, a lot of this is beginning to change. I want to close actually building on this idea of leadership that you brought up, Jim. Did you read Ron's article uh, in Forbes, Should Fintech Startups Hire Bankers? Yes. I'd love to hear, you know, as we close this out, you know, close, start with you, should fintechs yeah. hire bankers? 
Well, yes, I, 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 oh. is my. <laughs> yes, <laughs> he was okay, starting. Yeah. He was starting with me, Jim. Um, I'm just going to jump in. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I, I did read it. I thought it was a really interesting article. He talks about how the question is, you know, a little arbitrary, perhaps, and and it's it's very interesting to think about who should, you know, who should or could work for either. I interviewed Roy Gorey, the CEO of Manulife, for the Singapore FinTech Festival in December, um, among another couple of other great leaders and I really believe in Jim's point there on leaders and I think you really work for a leader maybe first before an organization but anyway Roy's got a couple of really interesting people in his very traditional business um ex ex Facebook ex FMCG types of people ex Apple and he always says you know you bring those people into your business and they can bring sort of a really different and diverse view I I think I think we're going to see a lot more movement between the two fintech's not so new anymore so I think the points that he was Ron was making in the article about really needing to perhaps bring some of that, you know, people with the 30 years experience that you're talking about into the new organisations and, um, you know, they need that structure perhaps. I, I think they would be beneficial within fintechs and I think we'll see a lot more movement between. How about you, Jim? It's interesting. I responded to Ron's article and I said, you know, the NFL draft was just in Cleveland and <laughs> I, I, I correlated in that just because they're a banker doesn't necessarily mean they should be hired. Yep. You've got to take the best player available. And, and the reality yeah. is we're already seeing this. Look at the number of transfers and, and you know, swiping from other organizations we've seen yeah. between, you know, Walmart taking people from Goldman Sachs, uh, City and, and Chase taking people from other organizations. We're seeing a lot of transfer because there's a, a real lack of supply of good digital leaders that are in the banking space that would mm. fit in the fintech space or that are in the fintech space that would fit in the banker space. So you got to be very careful in your draft to make sure you're getting the right banker or the right fintech leader. And at the end of the day, you, you know, it's got to be somebody that truly has a vision. But more importantly, I, I'll go to Colin Walsh from Varro and, and say, you got to have passion. You know, when we interviewed him, it became very clear that his whole mentality, his whole way of doing business, his way of talking about what he's doing is so much different than most of the bankers we have on the show. Not that doesn't mean good or bad. I'm just saying, you know, I want to get on his, you know, I want to get on his boat, you know, because because he's got the, the passion, the leadership skills and the banking experience to make this happen, which is probably why they're the first fintech to be chartered as a bank. Maybe it should become like a maybe it should become like a football draft. Jim, I love that you raised that the draft pick. Uh, Jason, you don't know this, but my husband and Jim both go for the same uh, football <laughs> team, and so those two just have this huge text message exchange back and forth. Imagine if there really was it, like the transfers, and it, it became like a a sporting event of oh, we'll have that person from this fintech, and we'll have that digital leader from this bank. Something yeah. to think about. Cool. Well, th fantastic. Thank you both for joining your thoughts. Look forward to another eight years of getting to work with celebrity guests like yourselves and look forward to seeing really what happens in the industry as banking transforms, as we see uh, more women in leadership positions and actually a lot more leaders that aren't part of the old guard of how banking and fintech worked. And mm. the space is really beginning to mature. Thank you both. Thank, Thank you. you. 
Hey, Greg Palmer here from Finnovate to say congrats to the Breaking Banks team on making it to eight years. What an achievement. You guys have done so much for the industry as well as for Finnovate and for myself personally. Really appreciate your voice in the space and the role you have played in just pushing everybody forward. Uh, from my standpoint, one of my first memories of you guys is obviously being on the show the first time. That's uh, the, a really nerve wracking moment in my own life. I'm sitting there in my house with the headphones on listening to you guys chat so casually while I'm sitting there thinking, and this is going out live to so many people, uh, obviously waiting for my chance to come in and try not to embarrass myself. Um, I feel like I did okay with that first one. And then of course you go from there to a couple shows later, me giving Brett the, the bell, the official Finnovate bell on stage at Finnovate, which was obviously a lot of fun as well. I uh, really appreciate everything you guys have done for the industry and for myself. Uh, thank you for your support. Thank you for pushing us all forward and congrats again on eight years. What an achievement. Well, joining us now is a longtime uh, senior contributor to the show, Ron Shevlin. Ron, I, you were actually one of the first guests ever on the show. I went back and listened in, in May of 2013. Um, you were talking then about the opportunity to leverage new technologies to generate new revenue streams. It's been eight years. How's the <laughs> revenue coming from the industry? How are we doing on that? Uh, I think I have to give it a D minus somewhere yeah. between a D minus and an F JP, yeah. uh, you know, to be, be nice, maybe give it a D, but you know, the idea, I think even back then was that there was this opportunity, not just to create new revenue streams, but to create new products and services that could generate revenue. And, you know, if you look at it strictly from the traditional bank or credit unions perspective, then yeah, it's D to F, but you know, with the emerging, plethora of, of fintech companies, you know, maybe there's some some hope on the horizon for that. But I think we got to give the industry a D minus two and a half on, on this one. Yeah, I, I, I agree. Uh, you also talked then uh, about you coined the phrase debanked, right? Not the unbanked, but debanked people who were willingly opting out of the tra traditional banking system. And you were talking then about how Gen Y was uh, becoming increasingly open to tech-driven companies that provide banking services. Now, here we are eight years later, and one of the most recent things you've written about in your Forbes column is how Chime uh, has to no longer call themselves a bank. And uh, your point was, well, if they aren't a bank, then what are they? And, you know, does, does the label matter? Well, it does matter in a lot of different contexts. It matters from a legal and regulatory perspective. For sure. And and I mean, that's why the banks are kind of up in arms that, you know, they don't want uh, the, the fintechs to be using the term banking because of that regulatory aspect. Um, but on the other hand, look, Chime has 12 million customers. If you go to them and say, you know, Chime's not a bank, they're gonna, what do you think that's going to happen? They're going to go, oh, I better close out my account. It's funny, I got I'm taken to now. task. Yeah, that's not going to happen. It's funny, I got taken to task on, on LinkedIn yesterday by a guy who's in the industry and a regulatory expert. And, and he said, Ron, you, you, you mistakenly referred to these accounts as Chime accounts. They're not Chime accounts. They're Stride accounts or Bancorp Bank accounts. And I said, well, technically, you're, you're absolutely right. And I shouldn't have said that. <clears throat> On the other hand, I, I could probably find you 12 million customers who think they have a Chime account. Right. And, and so, it, you know, it does matter, the label, because, you know, technically speaking, from a regulatory perspective, 
Um, you know, what California did was absolutely right. Um, my argument is uh, change the regulations. Come on, guys, let's let's get up with what, what's happening in in in, in 2021. You, you know, I could make the argument, JP, that um, hey, you know, my mid-sized bank that I have an account with, um, it's not really their account either. It's Fiserv's or FIS's account. Aren't they the one providing the technology behind it? So, you know, we attribute the account to who has the regulatory responsibility for it with kind of ignoring where the operational delivery is coming from. And this really seems to me to be just a dumb argument all the way around. Right. I, I mean, clearly, from a technical legal standpoint, you're absolutely correct. And um, and I think what you're saying, and certainly my view is, but so what from the consumer standpoint? The consumers really don't care. Now, uh, if and when we go through our next financial crisis and there's, um, you know, safety of money becomes a big concern, consumers might start thinking about that again and they might start thinking about uh, FDIC insurance and w who holds it and but am Chime I covered? Chime accounts, I'm oh, sorry, Chime, whatever, through <laughs> yeah. the, those are FDIC insured. Right. So, right. you know, I'm still, uh, and I asked a, somebody in the banking industry, who I won't name, I said, tell me why there is this safety and soundness concern when there is a legit bank behind it. Right. And as a matter of fact, since those banks behind it do support a wide range of often fintechs and perhaps even consumers directly through their own, you know, direct bank. Um, couldn't the argument be like the exact opposite, that they're actually in a stronger position to deliver service than a single bank with, you know, in, in a particularly, you know, vulnerable geography or location? And, you know, I also got arguments from this around the, uh, like there was that Beam bank that kind of shut down and didn't, you know, so, you know, the, the, the fraudulent aspect of this. And um, I sure hope Wells Fargo isn't a, an advertiser of breaking banks because I just got two words for that argument, Wells Fargo. Right. And, and, you know, so there's fraudulent activity that happens all over the place. It's not, has nothing to do with this argument, but that's the argument that people were trying to throw into it. Right. And, you know, the the beam banks and whatever there are, um, it, you don't need very many fingers to count. What are the number of uh, banks that failed because they were innovating on the fintech side, right, or, or their digital offerings? The vast, vast, vast majority of every bank that's ever failed has failed at the one thing that they actually claim to be experts at, and that is creating leverage, right? Taking in deposits, making loans, and somehow sooner or later they get the ratios wrong, they get the pricing wrong, and the balance sheet gets upside down, and that's what causes banks to fail. Yet, so many of the bank leaders are, you know, concerned that all this other stuff is too risky. And uh, I, I, I find that ironic, you know, eight years later or, you know, depending on where you're counting from, maybe 15 years later into the, the fintech revolution. Uh, it's funny, JP, because that's the exact argument they use for not getting into providing cryptocurrency. Yeah. Uh, that was another thing that, um, <clears throat> you know, just did some research on and from both the consumer and provider perspective, you know, uh, there are a lot of consumers in the U.S. who hold cryptocurrency today and say that they would prefer getting that from, from their bank. And 
you know, obviously a lot of reasons from a trust perspective for that. And yet you go to the bank side, when I surveyed banks at the end of last year, you know, it is less than a, it's a, it's a, sloths have three toes, right? It's a three-toed sloth number yep. of toes that, you, you know, the percentage of banks that said that they're interested in providing those services, at least back then. I think things are changing significantly. I think but so, the too. The argument has always been about risk. And, and I'm like thinking, okay, but I don't see you stopping your customers from using your debit or credit card when they go to Las Vegas and gamble or when they pay for uh, uh, cigarettes and stuff, which is harmful to their health. So, you know, to a large extent, look, I get the, what the risk is from crypto, but it's, it's gambling just like any other form of gambling to a certain extent. Uh, so the arguments that they, they come up with for not getting into the business, I just think are kind of excuses for not shaking things up internally. Well, the, the other thing I hear a lot is, yeah, 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 that sounds good. I get it. But we have these other things that we have to do first. Um, and in many cases, that's not wrong, right? They, they have some aging technology stacks and things that they have to try to address. But I also think that it becomes a little bit of a convenient excuse that it, it's easier to um, make some incremental improvements to the things that we've already been doing because that feels like it's less risky. But, you know, eight years in now, you know, maybe we so far we the we give the industry a D minus to an F on driving new revenue forward. What do you think over the next eight to 10 years? Will, will that get better or will we, will we be having the same conversation eight or 10 years from now? I think we're going to be having the same conversation, to tell you the truth, because I think what happens in the, well, it's not even just fewer banks. It it has a lot to do with the cycles of the economy and what drives revenue with the banks. And so, you know, part of the reason for the poor score in the past few years is we've had a very strong lending market up until recently. And look, that's always drives the, the majority of, of the income, revenue, whatever, from the bank perspective. And so when your lending volume is strong, yeah, the non-interest income stuff, uh, we can put that aside for a while. But, uh, you know, just as any large, you know, let's say consumer product good firm looks at their business and tries to create a portfolio that, you know, is, is balanced across different types of products and services, I think banks need to really start taking more of that kind of a view and building a base of products that creates a strong enough stream of non-interest income so that they can better weather the ups and downs on the on the lending side of the coin. Well, and prior to the last few quarters, we were running on, what, eight, nine years of record earnings. And so it's easy to ignore. Uh, yeah, there's other things I suppose we should be doing, but, um, hey, it's record earnings, so sue me, right? Um, and, and clearly, we're um, in a little bit different situation right now. Although last this Q1 2021 was pretty strong. I yeah. think that was record earnings for the industry. So Yeah. So when you look back, over the past eight or 10 years, is, is there any areas you would give an A to other than your uh, cryptocurrency holdings? To the industry itself? Yeah, or... and, and, I, and I'll say that broadly. Well, and if you want, you can, you can even break it down. If you want to say within the traditional industry of banks and credit unions, and then aside from that, just fintech. I mean, what, what, what has gone, you know, maybe better than you expected? Um, mobile banking. 
Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I do think that there was a much quicker move to adopt mobile banking than there was a move to adopt online banking back in late 90s, early 2000s. Yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, and I think there was a recognition. And obviously, though, JP, that was driven a lot by the absolute, you know, boom in smartphone adoption. But I think the industry actually uh, responded fairly quickly to that and moved relatively quickly in deploying mobile banking capabilities. Uh, I mean, look, some of them are still subpar for sure, but look, most of them have it in place and have been made those investments and didn't didn't use the same excuses. You know, listen, if you go back even 25 years, not eight years, you go back to the mid nineties, there were a lot of uh, bankers who said, we don't need a website, you know, right. what's, what's a website? We don't need a website. Then they had to get a website. Then it was online banking. Yeah, no one's gonna really do that kind of stuff. We've been there with telephone banking. That doesn't really work that well. Then they had to do it. Uh, bill, online bill pay, no, nah, no one wants to do that. Then they had to do it. So there's this history of kind of downplaying it. And I think in the past 10 years, I didn't hear the arguments against mobile banking. It was, yeah, we got to do this. And they, I think they moved much more quicker towards mobile banking than previous technology developments. Well, you're you're a data guy, so you probably do know this. Uh, but eight years ago, what, what do you think the smartphone adoption rate was in the U.S.? Okay, given that the... So when did the smartphone actually come out? 2007, 2008? Yeah, iPhone came out in 07. Yeah. yeah, so smartphone adoption eight years ago was probably not much higher than 20, 25%, if even that level. Well, according to your appearance on Breaking Banks, it was 60%. <laughs> and I think that sounds about right. Um, 60% from, really? from what I recall. Um, but um, yeah. Well, maybe among millennials. But, uh, uh, maybe. Yeah, and I don't have it in front of me, but I, yeah. I, I just think to your point that, you know, this ubiquitous device that everybody has really was a unifier. Um, right. There wasn't a lot of argument within the industry um, at a certain point of, um, hey, should we build something for this? Is, is there a there there? And, you know, the launch of the, um, you know, the move ins and the Perk Streets and the the simples, right? Some of the, the, the first of the uh, digital only neo banks, you know, really showed the way of you can do banking um, on this device here that everybody had. So, um, you know, I, I think you're right. That that was uh, a, a thing that changed the game. Anything else besides mobile banking, you think the, you know, either the financial services industry or the fintech uh, industry has done well? Yeah, I, I would less tangible, more uh, maybe attitudinal, you know, I think, you know, and I know there's a lot of folks out there and there might be somebody I might be thinking of in, in particular, and you'd know them as well, who, you know, often kind of bashes the uh, industry leaders for being slow to do something and, right. you know, laggers. But, you know, actually, I, I give the industry uh, execs credit for uh, taking the threat seriously. Yeah. Um, you, you know, the threat of disruption, the, the threat of, of behavioral change. I don't think there's a, a bank or credit union executive in, in the U.S. who downplays the potential for the threat. Yes, they might be slow to move. There's always you know reasons, and sometimes there's good reasons for that. But I think compared to, you know, even going back to the early 2000s after the dot-com uh, boom and bust, 
you know, I think there was a, a good number of execs in the industry who said, yeah, see, it's, yeah, we're still here. But I think now they, they really do treat the threat much more seriously. Well, on aggregate, I agree with you. I, I can unfortunately confirm there are still those that are downplaying it and uh, don't see the need for it. I, I just heard uh, from the CEO of a bank that was uh, acquired, and and um, you know she's now looking to leave that bank because the the incoming CEO says, uh, you know, that's not us. We're 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 community based, and um, you know that that's what we're good at, and so they're actually kind of moving away from it. We'll see how long that that lasts for them. I mean, the thing I think about is I think the general user experience um, has gotten a lot better. I, I do think that the tech drivers have uh, kind of shown the way of what a good digital experience is that doesn't always translate completely end to end because I, I think you know, eight or 10 or, you know, maybe even 15 years ago, uh, we just had this conversation with somebody, you look at somebody like an Umpqua bank uh, who did really, really great job of driving awesome uh, in-branch experience better than everybody else. They've not been as successful as translating that into digital experience. And I think conversely, there were a lot of banks that were, you know, uh, same, same as, same as uh, in, in the traditional way, and then actually kind of came up with some pretty good experiences on the digital side. So I hope, uh, hope that continues. What do you see going forward? Um, a lot of blurring of the lines, you know, I think this move and this trend towards embedded finance, uh, I, I, I'm going to just say this, I think to one ex some extent it's kind of overplayed. Uh, I do find it so, really kind of hard to believe that somebody just wants a general bank checking account, you know, spending account with Macy's or I don't know what other brand. Right. But the other aspects to it in terms of, you know, certain type of payment types of things uh, and certainly um, lending and insurance, uh, I, I think, you know, will certainly become embedded. So but the reality is, is that there's are not necessarily pulling the banks out of the equation. It's just a blurring of, of these lines. And on the other side of the equation, you know, I'm still pushing. So that's embedded finance. I like to make a distinction between embedded finance, which is embedding banking services into the non-banking provider. And I think there's a other side, the flip side of the equation, embedded fintech, of embedding fintech services into the, the bank's platform. Uh, and I think initially we'll see a lot of you know, money-related, if not financial-related products like uh, subscription management and bill negotiation services and data breach protection services, but ultimately, you know, we've all they've always kind of danced around the edges of providing a broader set of services. And I think once the platforms are, you know, the technology platforms are more established and better in place to do that, I think the banks will start to get more into the retail side, especially starting with money-related services. And I'm using that term to distinguish between, you know, that and a traditional financial product. Um, uh, so, you know, I, I think we'll see the kind of a move in the both directions, but it's, I, I, it's going to get real blurry. And that gets, goes back to our, you know, the start of the conversation, which is uh, labels matter. And so, 
you know, the terminology is getting really, really confusing out there. You know, bank as a service, platform as a service, cards as a service, embedded finance, embedded fintech. Uh, ultimately, all that stuff kind of shakes out and terminology straightens out. But right now, I think we're in that fuzzy period where everybody's throwing around labels indiscriminately. Well, and none of those that you just mentioned, I've ever heard from somebody outside the industry, right? The average business owner or consumer says none of those words at all. And I, I agree with the blurry lines comment. And I, I think that um, it's the biggest opportunity and the biggest threat for the traditional players, because at the end of the day, who really wants a financial experience? Um, n nobody. Right. They, they really just want whatever the end point of that is. Right. They've acquired a new asset or they've moved money from point A to point B or whatever it is. And that's why, um, you know, I, I'll take kind of the flip side of that argument for so many of the end users. The labels don't matter. And, um, and, and so it'll be interesting to see whose brand uh, really holds up. Right. Is, is Chime going to be as ubiquitous as Bank of America? Maybe, maybe not. Um, but whatever it is that it does for those consumers um, will be what decides that over the long run. Yeah, well, can I just argue two seconds yeah. here? I'll give this back, JP. Here's the yeah. thing: there's still a missing piece, um, which is advice and guidance on how to best manage your your money and your financial situation. And the brands don't have that objective and incentive in mind. Um, they want you to buy their products. They want to give you the loan so that you can buy their products. They want to give you the insurance on that so you can buy their products and services. But but there's a missing piece and you know you see it already. There's, uh, I, I, it's my own numbers and I can't remember them, but something like 40 to 45% of buy now, pay later customers have been late with a payment, not because they didn't have the money, but because they lost track of managing it. Mm -hmm. um, 40 or so percent of millennials who have more than one checking account um, overdrew on their account last year. Why? The majority said they lost track of all this stuff. Mm -hmm. So the ability, what happens in this world of distributed finance, and I'm not, I don't mean decentralized, that's a whole different issue, but where all these products and services are distributed, the management coordination and tracking of this becomes a lot more difficult, and I think that's a role the banks can play. And so, you know, you think about it, Chime has, you know, gained 12 million customers, but they should be just as much a victim of the embedded finance, but because they know their market very well, which is low to middle income consumers, you know, they're better suited to, to help provide that advice and guidance and carve a niche out. And I think that's, you know, that's what we're kind of seeing. It's still a threat to the traditional providers because you have all these new players coming into the market, focusing on very specific niches of the market because they understand the unique needs of those markets. And so, you know, we've said this before, uh, you know, the challenges for a lot of community banks in that affinity is the new community, not geography. And I think that becomes uh, the real threat to a lot of the traditional players. Well, but part of what I take from what you just said there is it, it kind of underscores my point in that nobody really wants that financial experience, right? People lose track of things because that, that's not an activity they, they want to do. 
Um, you know, I haven't balanced my checking account in I don't know how many years because, you know, I, I don't care that it balances <laughs> because out. Because Mrs. Nichols does it, right? No, uh... she does not. She's worse than I. <laughs> um, you, you know, I, I, I know it needs a number greater than zero in there. And, <laughs> and as, as long as it's there, I, I have complete trust uh, that nobody's lost any uh, nickels and pennies. You know, uh, you know, occasionally something gets processed twice or whatever, and I, I catch it. But I don't catch it because I spend you know, an hour every month uh, with, with the back of the statement, adding debits and credits together. And so I, I think that the ones that figure out how to manage that for you without it feel like, without it feeling like somebody's managing it for me, right? It just happens. Um, I, I, I think that's going to be somebody who can win going forward. I agree. It's also be those who figure out how they get paid to do that, too. So, Well, there you go. Well, Ron, listen, you've been on the show so many times over the last uh, eight years. A any favorite moments that you recall? Uh, you know, I have to tell you, one of my favorite moments wasn't being a guest. It was being guest host. I, uh, I might... I, I, I think I was one of the first guest hosts on the show. I mean, not the exact were. first. But uh, I remember Spiros Marguerite was on the show and then a rig tech expert. And I know nothing, still know nothing. I knew nothing and still know nothing about reg tech. And so, you know, I had to study up and prepare for that show. I can't tell you how nervous I was to guest host Breaking Banks. So that was probably one of my most memorable moments. And I learned the hard way to sort of let you guys do the guest hosting and the hosting. So, uh, well, that's that, a nice that was, that was memorable. And that's a nice thing about having Joanne Barefoot as a part of the team now, too. She brings the reg tech expertise. And, um, yeah, I, I'm, I'm always uh, humbled by the, the guests and the level of knowledge that uh, uh, folks have on. And um, uh, it, it's great to have them and great to have you, as always, on the show. So thanks for being here. Absolutely. Thanks, man. So Paul Ark is joining us all the way from Bangkok, Thailand. If you don't know Paul, he is a uh, venture capitalist working with Gobi Partners. Uh, prior to that, he led uh, digital ventures for CM Commercial Bank, which was their uh, you know, fintech uh, investment arm. He also did some work with Apple in the retail space, uh, spent many uh, you know, many years in, in the US market, but of course has been in, in Asia um, you know, for the last... Uh, um, half a dozen or so years. So, Paul, um, you know, tell me about the fintech and the startup scene generally in ASEAN and how you've seen it change over the last uh, last, last few years. Sure. Well, uh, thanks for that, Brett. Uh, so I think fintech started to hit uh, Southeast Asia uh, about five six years ago, so I actually I actually came into the fintech industry uh, in 2016 when a lot of the banks in Thailand, uh, you know, there's there's a lot of excitement around the term fintech, and a lot of the banks were willing to engage with fintech without you know perhaps understanding the full scope of what fintech was and uh, where it might go. So, you know, I, I think it, it's it's probably worth mentioning that. You know, up until a few years ago, Southeast Asia, you know, the economies in Southeast Asia were largely cash-based markets. And, you know, banking was still largely based on physical branches. 
uh, which meant that you know there was a, a great percentage of, of uh, people in Southeast Asia that were unbanked because you know you, you can really only access uh, you know banks in uh, either capital cities or where the terrain was relatively easy to build out infrastructure. You know you, you had a lot of mountainous regions in Southeast Asia. You know, uh, much of Southeast Asia is, is uh, peninsula of islands. So, you know, you, you didn't have bank branches everywhere. Credit card penetration was extremely low. Uh, and so, you know, you had unbanked populations, uh, you know, bordering on, you know, 70, 80, 90 percent in many markets. Uh, and, and so, you know, banking services were limited to a few, still largely cash based. Uh, in the countries where there was a little bit of credit card penetration, it was typically a small number of people owning about seven, eight, nine cards uh, each. So, uh, but what was was really quite interesting because of all the that, free toasters, right? Yes, yes. Although I think uh, you know, I don't even think people toast their bread anymore. That's very much That's a true. thing uh, or a Western thing. Uh, but uh, so you, you didn't have you know a, a plethora of, of, of uh, sort of modern banking services for the the, the great percentage uh, of the population uh, in these markets, and so uh, and so the banking industry hadn't really changed all that much uh, since you know. Pretty much for the last couple hundreds of years, it was still very teller-based, bank, you know, branch-based. Uh, you know, some of the services were, you know, relatively plain vanilla. And so, what had happened just probably in the last decade or so was, you know, you know, the rise of e-commerce. Uh, so, you know, e-commerce uh, started to become a big impetus for technology development in Southeast Asia. Uh, also, you know, the, the one remarkable thing about Southeast Asia is even though banking services penetration was incredibly low, you know, smartphone penetration was through the roof. So, you know, you have economies, you know, I think on average, Southeast Asia has about 130% smartphone penetration. Uh, and that's not just a handful of people owning multiple phones, but, you know, you have people up and down, you know, the economic, uh, you know, spectrum, you know, with you know, anywhere between, uh, you know, a thousand dollar, you know, latest Apple iPhone to, you know, a cheap hundred dollar Chinese made smartphone. Uh, and so everyone had some form of internet access, even if they didn't have some form of internet or they didn't have some sort of banking services. So, you know, with everyone sort of being connected, uh, the rise of e-commerce, uh, you know, that sort of drove the need for digital payments. And and you differently know. from the US, it, it was more mobile commerce, right? Because the, the in in the US it was e-commerce on the web, but um, it's it sort of as much as anything, it's the mobile commerce layers that have emerged on top of the app framework, right? Absolutely. I mean, you know, uh, Southeast Asia and many markets in Asia in general um, over the past couple of decades have been characterized by these sort of technological leapfrogs. So you know, Asia much leaped ahead very early on in in uh, sort of the the uptake of, of mobile phones you know because there, there wasn't a lot of uh, there wasn't a lot of landlines you know the the, the penetration of uh, you know uh, pot systems uh, and, and landlines was 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 tragically low but you know all of a sudden you didn't really need to, to dig up roads and build out copper wire you know you could just set up cell towers uh, across the region. So, you know, Asia went through this big leap in, in mobile telephony. Uh, and, and they started to see that uh, in in banking services as well. So rather than uh, try and build out branches everywhere, 
uh, try to get people onto desktops, try to get people to take up uh, credit cards, you could just leap to mobile payments. Yeah. And so we're starting to see that now over the last couple of years, you know, uh, mobile payment systems have exploded across Southeast Asia. Uh, you know, so the, the opportunity for um, uh, sort of leapfrogs in the consumer lending space. Right. Okay. Sorry. Yeah. Because, you know, for all the same reasons, people couldn't get normal banking services and setting up uh, savings accounts because the they didn't have enough capital. Yeah, it was, you know, it's, you know, just uh, being able to onboard, go through, um, you know, KYC. Now, you know, you've got technology and mobile technology that enable uh, peer-to-peer lending. Uh, it sort of enables alternative credit scoring systems uh, in markets where there, there weren't, you know, national credit bureaus to begin with. Uh, and so, you know, you're seeing uh, Southeast Asia leapfrog many areas of traditional financial services. And I think yeah. that's sort of the great promise of, of what we're seeing in Asia. Quite and similar I think to what we've seen in see, Africa as well. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I think where there's lack of infrastructure, you know, digital has a way of taking over. Well, Paul, thank you for joining us on the eighth anniversary of Breaking Banks. We're very grateful for your perspective. We hope to hear more about what's happening out in the region over time and, uh, you know, hope you'll come back on the show soon. Thanks, Brett. Happy anniversary. Thank you very much. That's it for this week. If you like the show, make sure to give us a five-star rating on your favorite podcast platform or share it with a friend or share it on social media. We'll see you again next week with more Breaking Banks.